ketamine from people asking me like, what do you think about ketamine? And uh, it's such a broad question. Like just cause you've seen it in the news doesn't mean that it's the end all be all, but it is pretty good. So a lot of what people have seen is they've seen uh, that there's the new ketamine nasal spray and they wonder about that. And then people will even ask me, oh, should I like get some K off the street? And if I microdose myself, will I feel better? That's a very uncomfortable <laughs> position to be put in. Well, what I say <laughs> is that, you know, you don't always really know what you're getting when you're getting it off the street. It might not really be pure ketamine. And then on top of that, you know, are you really dosing it right and all of that? Although, theoretically, you could have some benefits, but I'm... I'm never going to encourage you <laughs> to microdose your K to try to heal your depression. Please do anything under the guidance of your psychiatrist. But essentially this episode, we hope to be able to give people a little more understanding into the history of ketamine and then how ketamine has been used in the past and then, you know, what it's being used for in the mental health world at the moment. Yeah. So it was so funny when we were talking about um, kind of where we were going to go with this episode, I was like, oh, I'll talk about ketamine and early medicine. And it turns out it's not really that old. It wasn't like used in the, you know, Victorian era or anything like cocaine was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a little bit of something I didn't know. Um, so just to go over the history, um, it actually is a derivative of PCP. Uh, So our story kind of starts there. Um, PCP was first synthesized in 1956, uh, and it was first used in humans in 1958 with the hopes to be used as an anesthetic for surgery. And it did induce narcosis, but unfortunately it was at the price of this prolonged post-operative state of excitation, Mm -hmm. which you know, it's problematic if you're dealing with a post-op patient, you're doing your vital checks, um, you're trying to get them comfortable, they have an open wound, and and they're combative, and they're hallucinating, and they're psychotic. So this, you know, was, it could last up to 18 hours. So this was not an ideal, you know, this was not an ideal medication to to use in in operative patients. Um, So in 1962, Calvin Stevens produced ketamine, which gets its name, interestingly, from a ketone plus an amine. Um, and the, the long name of the medication for all my uh, orgo and uh, biochem majors is, oh, I'm going to butcher this, it's <laughs> 2-O-chlorophenyl-2-methylaminocyclohexanone. Um, also known as ketamine. (laughs) And it was, uh, you know, used as analgesia and anesthetic without the hypnotic properties or without as pronounced hypnotic properties as PCP. It was also short acting and effects should wear off within 30 minutes. So this was thought to be the ideal, um, you know, agent to use for surgery. So initial human trials uh, began in 1964, and they used volunteers at Jackson Prison in Michigan, uh, where volunteers described the feeling of, uh, quote-unquote, floating in outer space, um, and they couldn't feel their limbs. So you can imagine how this would be, and, and this is all at different dosages. If you give a lot, you know, you have different states mm-hmm. of consciousness. If you give a little, you have some 
states of, of what I'm describing. So hallucinations were associated with higher doses, and they were more common in adults than children. And they can be intense and troubling. So again, you know, this still wasn't ideal whatsoever. Um, but, you know, compared to PCP, which was the other option at the time, this was a little bit better. And it was known as a dissociative anesthetic. Again, this kind of mind-body dissociation, um, which, which was, was the hallmark of this of this uh, compound. So in 1966, they began to kind of make it available with prescription. It was known as uh, Ketalar, and it was like ketamine hydrochloride. And that kind of prompted its use as an anesthetic during the Vietnam War in the field. So that's basically what it was used for, um, kind of these surgical procedures that they didn't have access to, you know, better medications. And um, it was found that there was still a problem with the patients being in a high level of excitation when it was used during surgery. So to kind of combat this, they used uh, diazepam or droperidol to, to work with that mm-hmm. but still be able to use it during surgery. So in 1971, uh, Sadov et al. Um, proposed that doses less than uh, 0.44 mg per kg produce this subdissociative side effect. So... You know, there there was a lot of studies with what doses caused which effects and which were, you know, which could be used and which were purely recreational. So with the rise of propofol, which is used now for sedation and, uh, you know, anesthetic, the, you know, it was, there was a decline in ketamine with this rise in propofol. And at this, around this time in the, you know, 70s, you were starting to see abuse of the medication, um, Vietnam soldiers. There were authors and scientists documenting their own psychedelic experiences on ketamine. And um, people who abuse ketamine seek this dissociative effect known as the K-hole or separation between mind and body. And kind of to go off of that term, street names include Special K, Cat Valium, uh, Jet Super Acid. Do you have any more? But generally, most people just call it K. And it's very prevalent in like the Brooklyn techno scene. Just as much as there's people doing cocaine, there's going to be people doing K. And sometimes people doing both, which is a really terrible idea. But, you know, (laughs) and I think that most people who use it don't try to k-hole but unfortunately this is a substance that you're getting and you don't know your body's reaction to it and if mm-hmm. you're not that familiar with it it's very easy to have that happen and then those people will be like sitting in the corner frozen and in their essentially they will probably be experiencing some sort of you know very dissociative uh episode or like hallucinations things like that but from the outside often you just see someone like sort of frozen yeah so it's interesting um it's interesting that you mentioned that uh going into what i'm saying was like going into a k-hole isn't necessarily a good thing because um as i the next thing i was actually going to say was the drug's properties to kind of induce a near-death experience must be frightening but at the same time they've actually found a way to use this in uh, some palliative medication treatments so you know not you know you can have bad trips and Mm -hmm. and these it's kind of like nightmares are scary to you these uh, hallucinations can be very troubling and very distressing um 
But uh, anyway, I just want to wrap up the idea of ketamine being used for surgeries, despite the drawbacks and the similarities to the problems they had with PCP. Um, ketamine made a lot of surgeries possible, uh, either in the field or in rural hospitals that would have been what would not have been possible without some type of anesthetic or analgesic. So you know that's kind of it's a good thing for for some situations. However, in 1999, it was made a class three controlled substance. Um, and unfortunately, its long-term effects include paranoia and some cognitive impairment, not unlike we see with a lot of other drugs that are used uh, long-term. So just to go over the dose-dependent effects, at low doses, it causes stupor. At high doses, it can cause hallucinations and delirium, and at very high doses, it can cause decreased cardiovascular function and even death. Okay. Um, so I'll just go into really quickly how ketamine works. It's um, basically a non-competitive inhibition of N NMDA receptors. NMDA. Le you said it right. No okay. worries. <laughs> <laughs> leading to inhibition of certain neurotransmitters uh, such as serotonin, glutamate, dopamine, which ultimately leads to a decrease in signaling between the thalamus and the cortex. So the thalamus and cortex is where you kind of... Uh, the best way to describe it is to describe it in the sense of, of ketamine. So you're, uncouple, you're uncoupling brain activity associated with memory, emotion and then motor function or sensations and, you know, how you process them. So it's just, you know, it's an uncoupling. And I think that's, that's the best way to describe it. So before we go into some modern day uses, I do have to touch on some of the, this is fascinating to me. So in the 1960s and 70s, you know, they had their counterculture. There was um, a lot of experimentation and a lot of, um, kind of awakenings into different experiences. So um, there's a there was a neuroscientist, uh, his name was John C. Lilly, and he did a lot of experimentation with the unconscious and kind of the, you know, a lot of different human kind of experiences. And um, he, he actually developed the first sensory deprivation tank, which is, uh, it's like a kind of like a vessel and it's half filled with saline and you lay in it and supposedly you don't feel any senses and it's kind of supposed to be used to just kind of dissociate. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the theme of ketamine yeah. and all of this. But more interestingly, he did work with dolphins and he believed, as many scientists do still to this day believe, that dolphins are incredibly intelligent beings and he tried to use ketamine to find a way to communicate with dolphins and get on their wavelength and create like a certain language with them. So um, aside from him, there was another kind of known as like a counterculture guru. Um, and his name is uh, Thomas Leary. And he was a psychologist. He was a psychologist and he actually taught at Harvard. And he was known for studying the psychotropic effects um, of different medications in the 1960s with um, another uh, psych psychologist, Richard Alpert. They were colleagues. Mm -hmm. So 
believe it or not, back in the 1960s, there was something called a Harvard psilocybin project. Ooh. Yeah. And they, they <laughs> studied everything from mushrooms to LSD. And at the time, you know, there was... It was more easy to study these medications because there was less known or less published about, you know, the harmful effects of these medications. And a lot of these studies, believe it or not, were government sanctioned. They were, they had grants from the government to study these medications, these substances at Mm -hmm. the time. But there was a fine line between researching the medication and promoting it. Yeah. And a lot of times the research would kind of be muddled because the researchers themselves would also be on the medication at the time. <laughs> so, so it was really interesting. But essentially they would, you know, they had this slogan, um, I'm sure you've heard it, uh, tune in, turn on, and drop out. And it, it kind of... It really speaks to the generation and, yeah. and, and everything. And for better or for worse, they got some research out of it. They The subjects documented their experience. And, you know, we know now what we know about these, you know, psychedelic hallucinogenic substances from this research. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's really, it, it's just, it's so interesting to me how this was a, a branch of science that now would need to be so controlled and yeah. you know well things have gone too far in the other direction <laughs> obviously yeah so that's all i have kind of and i really thought there would be more i thought ketamine was something from like the you know early days like kind of like opium but it turns out not the case so given that we have such a we now have a kind of a smaller window to work with the only 1950s mm-hmm bring us to today what do we have going on so you know outside of psychiatry it still does have some uses outside of the ones you mentioned obviously it's mostly widely known as an anesthetic um but outside of the mental health implications i did see it used myself sometimes for like when i was on my neurology rotation as an intern for like headaches Mm -hmm. um follow the protocol i remember the patient, once we got to the real high doses, they were complaining of bothersome hallucinations. So it is a real thing when you get to the higher doses. So, you know, what really made me want to do this episode and made me want to find out more was, obviously I've gotten asked so much about it, but then recently I was in clinic and a med student was presenting on ketamine and a lot of us residents, we had questions about ketamine and like, what if we wanted to give our patients it? Like, how does that work? So... I luckily was able to use Instagram to get into contact with two physicians and a patient who have experienced ketamine. And they gave me so much information that I'm so thankful for. So thank you to the people I'm about to mention by name and talk about what they taught me. And the first one of these is Dr. Diana Samuel, who we will we'll tag her Instagram when we when we post this. But thank you. So she talked to me and she told me she's been in IV ketamine studies for treatment resistant, well, treatment refractory depression, which is the same as treatment resistant, I guess, um, since last February. And she is one of two psychiatrists at Columbia involved in this, doing the research. So the first thing I wanted to know is what, what does, what criteria does someone need to meet to be able to like, you know, be in an IV ketamine trial for you know treatment resistant depression and she said you know it can vary but 
they need to have at least failed a few trials of like antidepressants. Um, and obviously they need to be presently in treatment under a psychiatrist. And when you are assessing them for this, you would want to reach out to their psychiatrist to make sure they think they're a good fit for it. So that would be the first. And I was like, are there any contraindications? And she said, well, we would be wary if there were they were actively abusing substances or if there are any cognitive issues, because as Ali mentioned earlier, there can be some uh, cognitive side effects as well. So when someone would get in this trial, the what everyone would sort of sign up for in the beginning would be six treatments with the ketamine because studies show that while a lot of people show improvement after three, there are some that will improve, but they won't improve until they get five. So they want to do six to rule you out or in as a good responder to ketamine. That sounds kind of like ECT. Yes. And the reality is that a lot of patients get to the point in their treatment-resistant depression where it's like ketamine or ECT. Oh, wow. And the reality is that um, you know, I think a lot of people would prefer ketamine, but as I will, I'll mention it now and probably mention again later, it is not covered by insurance. So you're paying out of pocket for your IV ketamine. And like, I think one, I think, don't quote me, but I think, uh, I was told something like one round of these treatments would run you like $2,500. Oh my goodness. So it ends up being a lot. Um, so she said that with the majority of the patients, they are seeing at least some improvement, which is really great when you consider the population. These are people who have failed so many things. So you're, it's not like you're taking someone and this is the first thing they've tried. This is clearly much further down the list. So to see some improvement with the majority is really positive. Um, so then what happens if someone is a good responder you are going to want to do maintenance sessions, which is going to be variable, but sort of like with ECT, we do the same thing. You sort of like, you do closer together sessions in the beginning and then you sort of wean out as time goes on. And then, you know, if the person ever seems to be slipping back in, then you bring them back in for more. So the one thing is that a lot of what I'll talk about is the IV ketamine, but IV ketamine, like I mentioned, you pay out of pocket. Intranasal ketamine is covered by insurance. Mm -hmm. It has FDA approval. I imagine that it's because ketamine has been around for so long that there's no like pharmaceutical company that's pushing for FDA approval. This is my theory. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But that's just sort of how things work. Whereas like I would imagine that there's one pharmaceutical company that is producing the intranasal ketamine, which is known as S-ketamine, yes, I believe. Yeah. And they're so they were able to fund all that. But people like Dr. Samuel are working, you know, with these research trials. The hope is that the FDA would approve the IV ketamine for the treatment of depression and then insurance would cover it. So that's a hope in the future. I think that, again, I feel like I'm just making this up, but I think that intranasal ketamine is because it, it's a migraine treatment or like a cluster headache treatment. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of intranasal headache treatment. So yeah. it might have been just an easier vehicle. I'm not sure somebody fact checks. Yeah, us. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's obviously a lot of components to this. But Dr. Samuel told me, you know, studies do show that the IV is more effective because it's an IV versus something intranasal. So ideally that would be the preferential route to go. Obviously, you know, there's much less monitoring required for intranasal. You sort of 
it's very little. Whereas like monitoring after, you know, you obviously have to be there the whole time you're getting the IV. Titration. Yeah. Yeah. And all that. So it's a little more complicated. So the thought behind, um, Allie touched on a little earlier about how ketamine works, but compared to, we do have other depression treatments that work on your serotonin that work on your dopamine, but this is the only one that's involved in the glutamate pathway and it's a very different pathway. And so the theory is that maybe, you know, this is, this is what's making people respond well who haven't responded well to things in the past. It's also not immediate, but it's certainly much faster than the weeks and months that you have to wait for an SSRI. Yes, for sure. And we'll get into that a little more later. So one thing that when me and my co-residents were talking about this, we're like, well, if we have, if we offer IV ketamine, do we have to monitor the patient? Because clearly, I mean, that is very cost ineffective for a physician to be doing the monitoring. And I was told that, you know, in some cases it's nurses who monitor, but even, yeah, yeah, but sometimes it can even be like an EMT, someone with some just emergency background training. It doesn't need to be anyone like you know, where it wouldn't make sense for them to, like, I mean, the reality is for a physician or even a nurse to be monitoring, sometimes that's not very cost effective. No, it's not a good use of their time either. So also side effects and risk are overall pretty low. Like, like we said, you know, maybe if someone has cognitive issues, that's going to be a contraindication, but realistically not too much there's not too much to be concerned about so that's great and the worst case scenario really at the end of the day is just that the patient wouldn't improve from it so that's it's pretty pretty positive so next I want to talk about uh, my conversation with the patient I was able to talk to and her name is Ryan thank you Ryan for sharing your story so she told me her history is that she mostly has like an unspecified bipolar disorder. Like initially she's a bipolar too, but then I think she's put on like SSRIs or something, ended up having manic episodes and then might've been a bipolar one. So just ended up getting labeled unspecified bipolar. And she was um, hospitalized twice for mania. So that's more on once people are getting hospitalized, more serious mental illness. So she ended up after she had failed essentially every SSRI, because like I said, they made her manic. She tried SNRIs as well. She tried Wellbutrin. She tried almost every antipsychotic and almost every mood stabilizer. She found out about ketamine and approached her psychiatrist about it and was like, I want to get ketamine. Um, And they were supportive of that. So I think she told me she's from Colorado, which has a lot of ketamine clinics there. Mm. So she sort of like self-referred. Um, and which you can do because it's not covered by insurance. So you don't necessarily need all the, yes, yes, you can definitely, that's the one benefit, which can also be a downfall. Oh yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. And so essentially she, her bipolar two, she described it as she has uh, rapid cycles and mixed dates and stuff like that. So for her first set of treatments, she went two weeks for two weeks and she got it every other day and she said when she came into the clinic a PA would check her in and then they would like set up the drip for the IV ketamine and then sometimes a nurse would monitor but mostly it was just paramedics um, and she said it was the fastest relief she'd ever experienced 
and that's why she was willing to pay 2500 for two weeks of treatment. Wow. Yeah. And so essentially, because it is so cost prohibitive, they do try to space your treatments and work with you to space them out more. So she ended up spaced out being on getting the IV ketamine treatment for nine months. Spaced out. Yeah. <laughs> spaced out. So not like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know the exact details. But wait, wait meaning they... Yeah, they space them out space, further and further. Because okay. you could say spaced out, like you're on ketamine, you're spaced out. <laughs> yeah, I, I got that. Sure. Okay. Oops. <laughs> um, so she told me that when she started, she was obviously still on a lot of psych meds that weren't helping too much. And by the end, she was on zero psych meds. And now, since March 2019, she has not been on any psych meds. Um, and she did stop because she felt okay, but also it was getting very cost prohibitive. Like if you feel okay at some point, why would you continue when you're right. paying that out of pocket? If you're a normal person, that's a lot of money. So she is a total success story. She did say that like for her, the most bothersome part was, was experiencing the hallucinations. Um, and can she tell you when she, like at what point in the infusion or at what dose, like... I don't think we got into that, but I would imagine from what we know that it would be later in the infusion towards the end. Oh. And just because you're at, you know, there's more in your body by that time. But despite that, it sounds like she still had a, an overall positive Oh, yeah. Experience. She thinks it's amazing. That's why she wanted to talk to me about it. That's awesome. And she did mention that because of the hallucinations, you ha obviously have to take the whole day off from work. And you need someone to drive you home after your appointment because sure. you can't drive. So there's some logistical things. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think for most people, it's specifically visual hallucinations that they experience with the higher doses of ketamine. And she said it was just at the higher dose, actually. Okay. I'm reading my notes. No, Sorry. That, I mean, that's what I have <laughs> so, all over. So, yeah, she, yeah, she said that she was between the ECT and the ketamine, and she was worried specifically about there's a small risk of amnesia with ECT, ECT. Mm -hmm. and that was concerning enough to her that she went the ketamine route. Um, and she said after her second treatment, she felt much better. So the second treatment. Of That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Whereas ECT, it may take. You know, it just like or, with ketamine, ECT, it's very variable. Oh, interesting. You know, so it would be actually probably very similar that 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 could happen. But so those are two stories more about like using ketamine for treatment resistant depression. But the new hot topic is ketamine for acute suicidality. And I was able to talk to someone who's in a study for this. So thank you, Dr. Chris Racing, for talking to me. He is located at a hospital in Maine that is doing a study right now using ketamine for patients with suicidality in their emergency department. So if you're not a psychiatrist, you might not know this, but we have a severe lack of psychiatric beds for patients, like everywhere. I mean, if there is somewhere that doesn't have this issue, please let me know. Maybe I'll move there. Um, but patients often wait for days and days and days in emergency departments before a psych bed somewhere in their state opens up for them to go to. Oh. Yeah, so it's, that's not yeah. the place for that. No, oh, no, no, especially if like the person's really suffering, like truly suffering, which you know there are different types of patients waiting in for beds, and some might not need it as much and, as another person. And might I 
might I speculate that mm. there are patients in those psychiatric wards who are waiting for their placement, not any fault against them, but insurance reasons. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's a cycle. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, it is. Yeah. And the idea was there are some patients that like there's there that would be the appropriate candidates for this. And it's not everyone. It's actually a very small portion. So you'd, you'd sort of, if someone, obviously, same for IV ketamine for treatment-resistant depression, if they have a history of, like, substance use, you're going to not consider them. Um, you don't want any psychotic patients. Obviously, this is something that causes hallucinations, so no psychotic patient. And for people who have cluster B personality disorder, such as like borderline personality disorder, there's not enough research to show if this would be the right treatment for their suicidality. So currently, you wouldn't consider them. If um, they are diagnosed with a cluster B. But I would say a psychiatrist is going to have you're gonna know like it doesn't the patient's history doesn't matter it's like do I think this patient's history is consistent with borderline personality disorder when you're reviewing it before yeah 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 so when you're going in to assess them because you're gonna go through all that so then it would still have to be someone who you think needs an inpatient hospitalization for suicidality once you've ruled out all those reasons then you could consider ketamine for them and and so not only is it the suicidality but once again it still is they do also have to have the treatment refractory depression which he was very specific for them it's that they have to at least have failed two antidepressant trials so something else once they think someone's a good candidate they would make it very clear that this patient you are going to only get a single dose of IV ketamine from us because the worst case, the worst thing to do would be to, you know, cause something that backfires and cause patients to come back in more. So you're only ever going to be able to get a single dose of IV ketamine from this hospital. And part of it is, you know, obviously they refer them to ketamine clinics where if they have a good response, they can go get more, but you're only ever going to get one dose from our hospital. And they do the typical dosing, which is, um, 0.5 megs per keg, and they do this over 40 minutes. Obviously, the patient needs an IV, and at this hospital and some hospitals, the psych ED is a little bit different, and it, there's not usually accessibility to IV, so they often move them over to the main hospital, mm. do it there, and then there's more staff, so they would not necessarily... Well, they would require one-to-one, but there could be enough staff there that they're like clearly being monitored quite easily. And Whereas it, if it was like a uh, less staffed ED, there might, you know, have to find someone like poll staff to watch them or something like that. So it's easier to find one-to-one staff in the ED, like regular ED. So my question is, do you happen to know if the protocol includes like a benzo or some type of sedative to come to c- like kind of counteract the hallucinations or... No, the the idea is that if they have a one-to-one with them at bedside and they're in a quiet area, the whole goal is that that person is hopefully the type of person that can talk them through it, Mm -hmm. be sort of, you know, almost like their friend when they're going through this so that it is not, you know, a traumatic experience. And 
the patient Ryan that I talked to too said, you know, like some people do struggle with, they go to clinics and there's not really anyone Mm. being friendly or comforting and it's difficult because they're having hallucinations. So Dr. Racine had mentioned specifically that it was, you know, good to have like one-to-one staff that could specifically help this person go through since go through it all since it is a disassociative experience. Um, Especially, he said, if the patient has a trauma history, those patients can really go to a dark place when they're disassociating. Oh, no. Yeah, so it's if they have someone, you know, trained to deal with these types of situations, that person could sort of steer them back to, like, positive things and out of, like, the negative things that are going on in their mind. Okay. So... You know, overall, he thinks it's super safe and it's really low dose, so there's not any real side effects to be concerned about. Obviously, the loss of control can feel disturbing for patients, and some will even describe that they felt like they were looking down on themselves and almost like an out of body yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, dry mouth, which is similar to yeah. like a lot of things, obviously. And the one other specific medical concern that there would be is if a patient already has very high blood pressure, yes. you might not want to consider them for this because there is a spike in your blood pressure in like sort of the middle of the infusion and there's no tachycardia with this and it goes away right after. But sometimes, you know, if like, let's say the patient didn't didn't it wasn't a total contraindication how high their blood pressure ran but they did get a little too high occasionally they'll give them a little beta law if it's you know running real real high right and then he said one time the person's blood pressure got high enough that they actually stopped the ketamine infusion but you know then that's part of the reason you know you need monitoring exactly. for these things. that's yeah. why there's monitoring so um okay so normally after the infusion is completed, they'll still monitor people for a couple hours, then reassess them, like go back and be like, you know, are you suicidal? Um, and obviously if they were still saying they were suicidal, you'd proceed with your initial plan, which would be to get them into an inpatient psychiatric unit. But if they're not suicidal, which he said most people have improved enough that they're ready for discharge, So most people are improving significantly enough that it's making a pretty big difference. Oh, wow. Then what they can do is they discharge them, but they have it set up so that they're like working with like a crisis unit and they get an outpatient follow-up appointment within seven days. So not only would they, and the ketamine stuff would be separate. They would be given resources for that. They could pursue that on their own. But they would just really want really close outpatient follow-up. So that was obviously very exciting to hear. Um, You know, he does think that sometimes some of this might be like the power of suggestion. Like people do believe that it's going to help them so much that it helps them, but that's great. Who cares if that's part of the reason it's helping? I'm a believer in that. Yeah. I am a believer in that, especially... To get to this point where you need ketamine, you, you've tried everything. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah. Yeah, so, you know. But I do think that people who are very resistant are probably also resistant to the power of suggestion. So who really knows? <laughs> but either way, I mean, but some studies show that, like, getting an IV in you and, like, things like that can cause much more placebo than, like, taking a pill because it's so much more intense that you expect to feel more. And having the one-to-one, having someone yeah. sitting with you, you you've probably... 
you know, maybe these people have never had that before. Yeah. You know, they've never had that attempt. And, like, oh, I feel, oh, I'm okay. Like, you know, it. Yeah. It, yeah. And also, another thing to keep in mind with the ketamine is that people will have the peak benefits uh, for, like, either can be anywhere from, like, 48 hours to a week. So usually if they do end up discharging them, they contact them in two days and, like, check in and, like, how are you? Yeah, and, like, obviously if things are bad, they'd be like, come back, come on back into the ED, which, of course, every single psych patient, when they are in the ED, they're told, you know, if things get worse, you can always come back or whatever. So one other thing that I didn't mention, but it should sort of be clear from the things I mentioned in the past, is with these patients, too, they would always need to make sure that they have some sort of ride home. Because you can't just give someone IV ketamine in the hospital yeah, if they're not going to have someone drive them home. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, he said so far they haven't done this on a ton of patients, but it's been very promising with the group that they have. Obviously, there's a lot of factors here, so there's not even that many patients that are going to qualify to get this. And we did talk about one thing that I already knew, um, you know, a lot of ketamine clinics are sort of shady in that they're run by like either anesthesiologists or emergency medicine physicians who don't really care about like screening patients they're just in it to make money they'll accept anyone into clinic again this is the insurance issue that it's Mm. not covered yeah it's almost like a free-for-all yeah 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 and just in general with like cash banks things you there are a lot of people who can take advantage of that and sort of manipulate it but you know Obvious. So I think what he was saying is that he tries to find like the ketamine clinics that aren't like that to refer patients to. But, you know, the end all be all with all of this is it's a really great treatment, has a lot of promise. If you are a patient that has treatment resistant depression and you've tried several things and there's ketamine clinics in your area and you think, you know, it's something that you want to consider, that's something that you should talk to your psychiatrist about. Do you have any like any tips on how to identify a legit ketamine clinic at all? You know, um, I think your psychiatrist would be able to help you with gotcha. that. Like, for example, if like you know, I had a patient, I could probably like I could probably help them select a ketamine clinic in the area that I thought was reputable. So I would say, you know, this should always be done with the guidance of your psychiatrist and you should like get their advice on it. And they might even like already know of one that's good that they could just refer you to offhand. So yeah. And the idea more is like, obviously the ketamine protocol is going to be the same at every single clinic. So that's not really a concern, but like, do you really want to spend a lot of money on something when there could be an option out there for you? That's still good. That doesn't cost, you know, 2,500 every two weeks. I think that's more where it comes into like, this should only be your go-to when it's something that you really need. I agree. And my, my next question for you is, um, do you have any comments on using ketamine infusion during therapy? Oh man. So yeah, this is <laughs> obviously in a, uh, I think that in like, what is it? MDMA. They, yeah. There's like a lot of talk about like how maybe if you're on these medications and you reprocess traumatic experiences, that they would no longer be traumatic. And I think that's really great. I think it it probably has a lot of validity. It's very early in the trials. And obviously, like you mentioned earlier, this stuff is all 
super regulated. But, you know, I look forward to the day when these things will hopefully be approved and um, come on in for some ketamine trauma therapy, I guess. (laughs) One day in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when... Anna and I first discussed this podcast. We really wanted to make sure that we did not bring our outside lives in too much. You know, we want to just make it purely about our topics. But um, something happened to me uh, this past week that I wanted to share with her. And I told her, wait till I tell you, you know, in person. And I I think that this is a questionary tale. Um, So... I will, I'll share it here, and I think half of you are going to be like, oh my god, what an idiot, and half of you would be like, oh my god, really? So, I'm just going to share what happened. So, this isn't ketamine related. Oh yeah, the ketamine (laughs) part is done, so if you're just here for the science, (laughs) shut off the episode. So, I'm not, um, you know, I, I don't typically, I'm not computer savvy, I don't you know, sell things. I purely use Amazon for purchasing things. So I went to sell a product. Um, It was a computer. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not familiar with it. So I just joined eBay and I'm like, "Uh, uh." so I entered (laughs) it into the system. I used, you know, the serial number, I took pictures and everything. And every time I listed it, eBay kept taking it down because they said like a third party who wasn't really a buyer had bid on it. So they would just cancel the listing. So at one point I just put it up with like a a default picture. I was like, here, I'm selling this. And I got an offer. And apparently you're not supposed to respond to people who say, text me at this private number. But I did because I was like, well, maybe it's just easier. So I used my work phone so they wouldn't have my real phone number. And they said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll buy it. Can you, um you know, overnight it to my nephew, which apparently these are all red flags. Oh, God. And he, um, he, it's his birthday tomorrow, but I'm going away, so I won't be able to get him something. So Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> I can't believe you fell for this. Right. But here's the thing. Even if we hadn't had this conversation, I still got an email from PayPal saying that the money was deposited into PayPal and it would be released into my account barring I I give them the tracking number. Mm -hmm. And I showed a cop. I showed my boyfriend. I showed people at work this email. And they all were like, well, that's PayPal. So what happened? And I'm like, it wasn't PayPal. It was fraud PayPal, but I would not have known at all. So I went ahead and overnighted it. And I sent quote-unquote PayPal, my tracking number, only to find out, like, three days later, they're like, oh, you need, like, to, you need to upgrade your account to business, so you need to, you know, the buyer is going to give you $2,000, and you have to give it back to them. I'm like, I don't, I was at work, I'm like, I don't know, whatever. So the buyer was texting me, where's my $2,000? I'm like, "Mm, no, the way it works is you have to give me the $2,000. Right? Like, isn't it? I, yeah, duh. They kept asking me, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not giving you money. So I called PayPal, and I'm like, mm, is, this a, is this a thing? And they were like, no, not a thing. Last time we emailed you was three weeks ago about a different transaction. 
I was at full panic attack mode. Just I mean, I, I would too. I was like, no way. So I, you know, I had to email PayPal these spoof emails. I had to email them to eBay. They told me to go, I had to go file a police report. I had to file a report with the FBI. Oh, God. I, I'm telling you, Anna, like, just look, just at first glance at this email, you would have thought it was PayPal. Like, they really got me. Was it, like, from PayPal? It, like, that's what it said, but when I asked PayPal, they said it wasn't from them. Okay, well, everyone beware. Everybody, just beware. <laughs> like, I, because, you know, it, it makes it seem like, oh, we have your money. You just have to let us know you shipped it. So everyone was like, why would you ship the computer without getting money? And I'm like, well, I thought I had the money. Yeah. I thought, like, they were just kind of, everything was just, you know, they're, everyone's crossing their T's and dotting See, their I, I know that I'm stupid, which is why I don't like selling <laughs> things online, because I know this will just happen. Oh, my God, I'm so stupid. Yeah. Mm, and I am, too, but it's okay. When I went to file the police report, the cop was like, well, you know, I always tell my kids, never give your information out. And I'm like, I didn't give my information out. No. This email looked legit. Like, I've showed people, and they thought it was real, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> now you know. Now you know. Lesson learned. Oh, my God. I'm so stupid. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we were able to teach people about both ketamine and uh, appropriate internet practices to avoid fraud. So apparently, if you're mailing, if you're selling something for a large sum of money, you should double check with PayPal and double check with eBay and just make sure everybody is. How much did you lose the, again? I don't even want to talk about it. Okay. I don't want to talk we'll about it. We'll say some prayers for you. <laughs> I, and you know what the thing is? I don't want. I don't want the money back. I don't care. I want this person to like suffer, suffer. I want them to yeah. either go to jail or get like sales calls for the rest of, I don't care. Yeah. Whatever their version of suffering is. Come on, dude. Cause I'm not the only person yeah. that they've done this to. No, I can't believe they're making tons of money off of this. I can't, <sighs> yeah. I can't believe it. This stuff is why I have no faith in the world. No faith. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Well, until next time. Thank, thank you, you for, for this console on <laughs> ketamine and internet fraud. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>